In 2006, the organization that I founded, United Civil Front, had a Congress, and we actually published a document saying, looking at the trends of Putin's regime, this regime would not leave power through normal democratic process. It will not be changed by the ballot. We have been labeled radical, standing on the way of evolution. Inside Russia, many liberals, many people, you know, just that had to be our, you know, ideological allies, they thought we were cursed. It's like a plague, you know, radicalism. And the fact is that I wanted to work with any political force to actually bring back free and fair elections. So that's made things even worse. And in the West, nobody wanted to hear that. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. A few months ago, I argued that there is a little more reason for optimism about the state of democracy today than there has been for most of the last five or six years. Authoritarian populists continue to pose a real threat to democracy in many countries around the world, but there has been some genuinely good news. Donald Trump is not at present the president of the United States. The German elections were very reassuring, giving a big majority for moderate political parties. The rise of Eric Zemmour in France is certainly worrying, but it does not look likely that the far right will capture the presidency in this election. And many populists who have been in power for a long time are becoming less popular, from Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil to Viktor Orban in Hungary, even to Vladimir Putin and Recep Erdogan in Turkey. But I worry that there is at least one continent that seems to give the pessimists a pretty strong set of arguments. Across Latin America, we are seeing countries that used to be comparatively stable and comparatively prosperous devolve into a very heated competition between the far left and the hard right. In Peru, a chaotic first round with many candidates left voters with an agonizing choice between a socially deeply conservative but economically very far left newcomer and the daughter of a former populist come dictator. Now Chile seems to be poised for a repeat performance. Chile is the most affluent country in Latin America. It has been one of the most politically stable countries in Latin America ever since the collapse of the terrible Pinochet regime. But it has been rocked in the last few years by a wave of student protests, by a rewriting of the constitution, by a weakening of its political parties. And in the first round of presidential elections there, two candidates who qualified for the second round runoff represent these extremes. There's Gabriel Boric, a leader of those student protests who has expressed sympathy for a number of authoritarian leaders on the continent. And then there is the surprise candidate who is now favored to win the second round elections according to betting markets like predicted, Jose Antonio Cast, a far-right leader who seems to throw in his lot with right-wing authoritarians across the continent and beyond. There are many things wrong with 
the establishment parties in Latin American countries. It is not entirely surprising that so many voters across the continent are turning to the extremes. But that doesn't make the depolarization of those political systems any less concerning. If the trends in Europe look cautiously positive at the moment, the trends in Latin America look quite concerning. My guest today is Gary Kasparov. Gary is a world chess champion, according to many, the GOAT, the greatest player of all time. But he's also a keen political mind, somebody who was critical of the Soviet Union early on, who was a staunch opponent of both Vladimir Putin's and later of Donald Trump's, somebody who is active today as the founder and chairman of a Renew Democracy Initiative, which tries to stand up for democracy both in the United States and around the world. We had a really fun conversation for me about his intellectual roots, about how a chess player came to be interested in and think about politics, how he was drawn into political activism, why he saw the warning signs both about Putin and about Trump early on, and what some of his concerns about the current culture in the United States are. I learned a lot about who Gary is and where he comes from in this conversation. I learned a lot about how to think about politics from this conversation. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Gary Kasparov, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Gary, you know, when I think about, at this point, your many years of political activism, one of the things that really strikes me is that you were right on the big thing at every juncture. You were right about the Soviet Union, you were right about Putin, you were right about Trump, you may be right about some of the transformations in America today. How did you start getting interested in politics? You were, you know, a champion chess player. The incentive was to shut up about politics and, you know, become a kind of stooge of the regime like some other chess players were. How did you get drawn into distancing yourself in various ways, small and large, from the Soviet regime? First of all, Yasha, thank you very much for making such a nice introduction. So yes, I was right on many things. I was wrong on many things. I'm not a Nostradamus, you know. I don't have a crystal ball or magic wand, you know, to look in the future. Anything I said was based on my experience. In fact, I read tons of books. And also, I had a chance Thanks to my Soviet education, both in school and also life education, to apply this knowledge to the reality. So it's the reality check. It's much easier task for those who were born on the other side of Iron Curtain. And also, as the rising star in the Soviet Union, potentially, you know, chess world champion, I had to face a lot of challenges based on my blood. I'm half Armenian, half Jewish. And the man I had to challenge was Anatoly Karpov, the darling of the system and the Russian champion. And uh, that was a big deal as well. But also my education back in Baku, where I was born, I always want to tease my American audience saying I was born and raised in the deep south right next to Georgia, which is technically correct. Deep south of the USSR, right next to the Republic of Georgia. And Azerbaijan was one of the Transcaucasian republics, three republics, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia. I was half Armenian, half Jewish. So growing up in Baku, it didn't make much of a difference because that was an imperial city. Unlike Yerevan and Belisi, where the local language, Armenian or Georgian, was dominating. 
in Baku, everybody spoke Russian. So this was very much a melting pot. My mother, the eldest sister in the family, she married a Jew. The second sister married an Armenian. The youngest sister married an Azeri. So no big deal. And all of us who are still alive, they're in Moscow. That also explains, you know, the migration process. Because when people ask me, so why do you leave Baku? A part of the fact that it was, you know, the only way to escape ethnic cleansing in 1990, at the beginning of the Armenia-Azeris conflict that ended with war between these two countries, it was a very natural move for those who were born in the empire that collapsed. So as many Brits, you know, moved from India or Sri Lanka or French, moved from Algeria or Morocco, for me, it was the move back to the capital of the country where I was born. I said, I grew up in a country where Moscow was a capital. I continued my chess career in the country where Moscow was a capital. But going back to, this, to the Soviet days, so thanks to my uncle, my father's younger brother, because my father died when I was seven and was left with my mother, who never remarried and spent the remaining 50 years of her life working just for me. And I stayed in her house with my grandfather, who was the diehard communist. But my uncle, uh, you know, this classical Jewish intelligence, so he introduced me to people, you know, that had very opposite view of the Soviet Union. And also, I was a voracious reader. So that's why I read a lot of books. And many of them, actually probably all of them, were not available in the Soviet public libraries. So very quickly, I see that the gap between the official propaganda and official story of the great Soviet Union and the reality. Again, reality check. So when I, you know, became a mature chess player, when I say mature, you know, I was, say, 1920, and every knew I was on my way to the very top. So I already, you know, had my mind worked out, and I saw that the Soviet system was not the one that could actually help country to develop. My first trip abroad was in 1976 when I was 13. To travel to France in 1976 it was a big deal. Today, when I tell my kids, oh, I traveled to France, big deal. You buy the ticket, you, you go from New York to Paris. I was probably the only person in our neighborhood, and Baku was a big city, the fourth largest city in the Soviet Union, after Moscow, Leningrad, and Kiev and more than a million people. And we lived in a just very dense area, ironically called Armenikent, the Armenian village. It was already mixed population there. And I think in this neighborhood, I was definitely the only kid, but probably one of the very few adults who ever traveled to capitalist country. Some people traveled to maybe the socialist countries in Europe, yeah. Some of them worked in places that the Soviet Union had missions like Vietnam or Angola, but traveled to France? I became kind of a hero, not because I played chess, but because I saw something that nobody could actually imagine, except, you know, watching the movies. Oh, that's amazing. But you found that sort of there was a narrative, presumably, about the Soviet Union being politically and economically perhaps superior to Western countries. And then as a 13-year-old, you got to see Paris and you got to see France. And he said, hang on a second, this doesn't gel with reality. Or how does that play into your sort of politicization? Absolutely. And also, the Soviet Union, the population, the average average person on the street had very little doubt about economic superiority of the West. So there was a growing gap between official propaganda and people's senses, because they saw the reality, the long lines, you know, just to buy food and buying, you know, the proper clothes. That was a big deal. The whole system was based on the power of distribution. So if you were connected to party or government structures, you had access to special shops where you could actually purchase normal things, but they were not available for the general public. Also, we had a, a very limited network of shops called Berioska, where you could actually buy things for special rubles. Those are the rubles that you can actually get by bringing dollars or any hard currency from abroad. There we had, you know, some goods from Finland and God forbid, Germany. <laughs> and uh, of course, there was a black market. 
So officially dollar was 62 kopecks for one dollar, but on the black market it was at least one to three. So at least one to three. So it was so much disconnection. And it didn't take a long time for me to figure out, also thanks to my uncle Leonid and other people that I met, because traveling at early age, you met people. I gained in a lot of experience and my mind always operated you know, just quite fast and effective. So I picked up the pieces and already I had a picture in my mind. But having said that, you know, I don't want to pretend that you know, I already knew it. So I just as I wanted to become a hero. No, all I wanted is to become world champion. That's it. I don't want to upgrade my story. So it is what it was. I'm here to tell in 79 and 80, while I was highly critical of the system and we talked in the kitchens and had jokes about Brezhnev. All my mind was about winning the title, which meant I had to play by the rules because I already had problems as I described, you know, half Armenian and half Jewish were from Baku, challenging Karpov, big deal. So how did you come to have this reputation as somebody who was critical regime? Is it, you know, when I think of a famous essay by Václav Havel that every greengrocer has to put a sign into the front window to signal solidarity with a regime and so a non-action becomes a political act. If you don't put the sign in your window, then people can learn something about your secret. Is it that you sort of weren't enthusiastically participating in propaganda events? Is it that the regime probably listened to what you were saying in the kitchen table and they knew? Is it that you said certain things publicly that were critical in a roundabout way? Sort of what was the process of a chessboard champion to having sort of that reputation as not being on the line regime in the way that Anton Likapov was or then later becoming more politicized? Look, again, I don't think it took long for party officials in Moscow and KGB to figure out that I would not be like Karpov, is controlled by authorities and a loyal party soldier. So if not for some, you know, lucky political changes in the Soviet Union, lucky from my perspective, I would make it to the very top because Karpov, you know, had many layers of protections before actually I could beat him at the chess board. But, you know, as I said, I had to play by the rules. So I attended official events, the Komsomol events. In 1984, I had to become a member of the Communist Party. So you had to play by the rules actually to get your rights to actually challenge Karpov. Because there were certain moments where, you know, the political system could actually throw me away. There was a big scandal in 1983 in the semifinals where the Soviets preparing for the boycott of Olympiad in 84 in Los Angeles blocked my participation in the semifinal match against Viktor Korchnoi. And so I could be out of the cycle. That's what the head of the propaganda department of the Communist Party in Moscow bluntly told me, okay, you're young, you can wait for three more years. But I said I was lucky because the head of the Azerbaijan Communist Party, Haydar Aliyev, also the former KGB, but we know, no former KGB, guys, and one of the Andropov's favorite. So he actually picked me, you know, just, you know, under his protection in 1979. So young kid, Armenian, good for his uh, political ambitions. And being under his protection, I actually could avoid the wars. And in 1983, because he already became the member of Politburo, so he pushed me back. Again, there's nothing else but him basically securing my way to the top by playing chess. Karpov kept telling this story saying, oh, that Gary had support. Yes, it was like a shield, you know, in video games you have a shield. So basically I was shielded from the never-ending attacks and attempts to actually throw me away. In 1984, I played my first match with Karpov. And then the match that was the longest match in the history of chess or probably any other sport that took more than five months ended with no result because while Karpov was winning in the beginning of the match, I picked up my game at the end. So, and after game 48, when I just won two games in a row, they decided to close the match. So that was a big scandal. And that was the first time where I took a stand. If you want to look at the beginning of my quote-unquote dissident career, we have a date. February 15th, 1985, Moscow Hotel Sport. 
And the reason is that basically they thought that you were about to win this epic match and they wanted to protect Karpov against that. Yes, again, I don't want to go against the numbers. I was still trailing five to three. But after losing five to zero and winning three games, especially two last games, 47, 48, I had an initiative and Karpov was in a terrible psychological shape. So I had real chance of winning. And the third authorities, they didn't want even consider this possibility. So let's say my chances were 25, 30%, as I anticipated myself then. But there was too much for them to live with. So they called for FIDE president, then Florencio Campamans from Philippines, who had a long story working with KGB. So he showed up, closed the match, and that's had to be it. But I was there and I said, no, I'm not tired. I just said, well, I'm not exhausted. I'm here. I want to play. And it broke their scenario. And that was the first time when I said something in public. When I say in public, 1985 February. I mean, nothing much was happening in the Soviet Union. You had many foreign journalists that had nothing else to do. The auditorium was packed with cameras. And all the Western media was there because they saw, oh, maybe something is happening eventually. So I made a statement in front of the foreign press, which means in front of the world, challenging the decision of Soviet authorities. That's the beginning. So basically, it reinforced the suspicions of top authorities about Gary Kasparov's reliability as a good member of the Communist Party, because I didn't hesitate. I said, no, I want to play. So eventually, the match was still closed, but, you know, they had to actually announce a second match, and I knew I would play a match in September. But there were other things there, just, you know, they still tried, you know, to cause problems because they wanted to protect Karpov before he had to face me in September. And in May... That's the May 1985. That was probably uh, the next logical step. I had an interview with their Spiegel magazine. I played in Hamburg in Germany, a training match with a top German player, Robert Hubner. And I had an interview, which I think went to 80 publications around the world. And that was like, you know, just a bomb. I called the FIDES International Chess Mafia controlled by KGB. Now, 1985, Gorbachev just took over, but it's still Soviet Union. And uh, I faced uh, disqualification because it was not just uproar. It was, I mean, more than a scandal. It's, they said, oh, wow, we got him. So again, I was lucky. The Gorbachev, one of his first steps, he brought Alexander Yakovlev, who was ambassador in Canada, brought him as the head of the ideological department of the Communist Party. He was still just the head of the department, but everybody knew he was Gorbachev's closest aide. And ideologically, you know, he had a very powerful word. And he told me when, you know, this issue went all the way up to Politburo, you know, he convinced Gorbachev saying, what the hell? One Soviet grandmaster playing another Soviet grandmaster. Why should we bother? Let them decide who is the best at the chess board. And Gorbachev said, guys, you know, we're too busy. Okay, just move on. So that's how I was saved. And I met Yakovlev in August. And after this meeting, I came back to our base in Moscow. And I saw my mother said, mama, now... They let me beat Karpov. So now I can play chess. <laughs> so it's the first phase. And when I became world champion, there was a dominant thought in my mind is that I did it. So many people never made it. So why should I keep silent? So it's like a duty because I was so successful. I have to show the other people that they can rise because, you know, Soviet Union, People had a genetic memory of what happens with those who raised their voice, who actually who disagreed. But world champion, it was a very sacred title. So I was almost untouchable by the Soviet standards because chess was viewed as the most important ideological tool to actually prove intellectual superiority of communism over decadent West. And the world champion 
10 years of Karpov and of course the Soviet dominance from mid 1940s in chess. So that's created an image that Soviet authorities, they were afraid to touch, especially, you know, with Gorbachev, who was busy with other things, and they didn't want to continue the same kind of dirty games. Interesting. And so it's the mid to late 1980s now. What was your outlook on politics at the time? You were critical of a regime. You saw the way in which they tried to interfere, even with something like who should get to be the world champion of chess, one, as you were putting it, Soviet grandmaster or another Soviet grandmaster. But at the same time, you'd always grown up in communism. So did you think that sort of the idea of communism was sound and the problem was the Soviet regime? Did you hope that it could be reformed? Or at that point, were you already convinced of the superiority of something like, you know, free markets and liberal democracy? If you go back to, let's say, January 1988, what was your outlook on politics? Excellent question, because you actually pointed out at a big debate in the Soviet Union, especially in Soviet intelligentsia, about the ways to reform the country. And I grew up, you know, under the impression that, yeah, things were probably not that bad. And when you look at the roots of the revolution of 1917, though I don't call it revolution anymore. For me, it's now it's Bolsheviks take over. But in the mid-80s, yes, Stalin was bad and there were plenty of articles, you know, talking about the crimes of communist regime. But still, you know, there was just an illusion so, yes, maybe we have to find this the new clean version of communism. Maybe, you know, just if you go to the, the, the origins and, and you just, you know, you analyze it and you actually can make something out of it. Yes, there was a civil war and we know that Lenin also was, you know, in favor of terror. But maybe, maybe there was a chance. And um, the late 80s, for me and for many like me, that was the time when these illusions have died. Because we, we actually had access to more documents. Yeah, I read Archipelago Gulago before, but still, you know, this is reading one book. It was even as powerful and well-documented as Archipelago Gulag and uh, looking at many other documents and receiving, you know, this information because a lot of people now, they wanted to talk. You know, we had conferences, you know, we have debates. And fairly quickly, I shifted from my naivete of someone who believed in Gorbachev's attempts to reform Soviet Union into far more, you know, radical opposition, recognizing that, it's not just shortcomings. The whole system, yes, you know, is rotten and had to be replaced. And when Gorbachev talked about the socialism with a human face, my response was Frankenstein also had a human face. So in 89, I was already, you know, quite adamant in my opposition to communism. And since I was a member of the Communist Party from 1984, and I'm not proud of that, but I'm proud that in January 1990, almost two years before the collapse of the Soviet Union, after what's happened in Baku, you know, the ethnic cleansing, and clearly for me was just, you know, the provocations of the Soviet authorities, KGB, to reinstate control of the national republics of the suburbs by pushing or by just inciting the ethnic hatred. So I sent an official letter to Azeri's sports committee where I was registered, informing them that I am leaving, saying that, you know, I had no more illusions. It's a criminal regime, and I just have nothing to do with that. So consider me, you know, gone. So I left the party. And uh, I immediately jumped into the pool of the newly born politics. And in May 1990, even just, you know, a few months before, my fifth, the last match was Anatoly Karpov, the title match, because we played 84, 85, then one in 85, one in 86, one in 87, and the last one in 1990. Just a few months before, I couldn't, you know, resist temptation to become part of this very chaotic gathering in Moscow that ended up by creating first non-communist party in the Soviet Union since 
1920 when the Bolsheviks had destroyed all opposition. And uh, it's called Democratic Party of Russia. It was not a very healthy union because it was very chaotic, as I said. But it was politics of the street. And there was tons of energy. And I couldn't, of course, concentrate on that because I had to go and play Karpov so that to defend my title. But when I came back, I remember that this, in January 1991, there was a big meeting called by mayor of Moscow, then mayor of Moscow, Gavril Popov. And it had all sorts of people. Again, we had little in common. They were just rejected the Gorbachev's regime and the power structure because it, it ranged from people like me, you know, the radical opposition, to even Yuri Lushkov, who was Popov's deputy, but the man who had basically pulled all the strings in Moscow. And he just wanted to get power. But we all were together because we faced all-powerful KGB and Central Committee of the Communist Party. And Anatoly Sobchak, the mayor of St. Petersburg then, he said, oh, it's the tough time. We're facing the storm. But let's raise our glasses for one victory that we had recently. Gary Kasparov beat Anatoly Karpov. <laughs> it was treated as a victory of free democratic Russia versus um, old communist regime, especially because I was the first Soviet athlete who refused to play on the Soviet flag. Hmm. In 1990, in September, in New York, I made a statement that I'm no longer playing on the Soviet flag. And I played with Anatoly Karpov, again, more than a year before the collapse of the Soviet Union, with Russian flag on the table. So eventually, Soviet delegation protested, the Karpov delegation protested, and they removed both flags. Hmm. Uh, actually, I succeeded by removing Soviet flag from the stage. And I played every game having the, the pin with a Russian flag, three-color Russian flag on my lapel. So let's go from one mayor of St. Petersburg who toasted to your success to another mayor of St. Petersburg about a decade later who became one of your great political adversaries. Uh, vice mayor. Vice mayor, I'm sorry. Putin was a Sobchak's, you know, uh, right-hand man. Though many believe that as a KGB guy, he, does, he had something on Sobchak and uh, he was really one who was calling the shots. I don't know. So take us through the 1990s, the collapse of the Soviet Union, how you see the chaotic democracy of the 1990s and how you really become fully active in politics, as I understand it, in the early 2000s with the rise and the consolidation of power by the then no longer vice mayor of St. Petersburg, but the strongman in the state, Vladimir Putin. Look, I was never fully engaged in policy in 1990 because I was still playing chess. I was active chess player. Though I spent too much time outside of the chess board, much more than any of my colleagues ever, but I still had to go back and just, you know, to work and then play the tournaments and win them. So to preserve my place as a number one rated player in the world. So I was very active in 1991, as I said. But then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I didn't want just to drop my chess career. So I was not ready. And my mother was adamant. She was dead against it. Just anything that, you know, could endanger my chess standings. I appeared occasionally. So 1993, during the conflict between Yeltsin and the parliament, I took Yeltsin's side, though Right now, I'm less proud about it than I was in 1993. In 1996, I supported uh, Yeltsin's re-election campaign. Again, I'm much less proud now about it. And I think we, many of us made mistake thinking that victory at any cost, you know, is justifiable. I think that was a big mistake. So. And why was that? What seemed to be the alternative at the time? And it's easy for me to criticize us, you know, all of us, you know, what we did 25 years ago, myself included. But we looked at Zuganov. We looked at the Communist Party. We looked at people who supported him. And for us, you know, it was a restoration. I don't think it was now. In any case, it was not, you know, right to support the campaign. The elections were free, but not fair already. 
but still absolutely free. So that Yeltsin had massive resources behind him, Zyuganov didn't. And also, I think Zyuganov really didn't want to win. He would like to grab it, but he was afraid. So after 1993, he said, oh, let's not tease, you know, the bears. <laughs> and some people in the Yeltsin's entourage, they even approached me, suggested that, oh, maybe we have to cancel the elections. And I said, I had nothing to do with that. So naturally, no, I stayed with those who said, try free elections and let's win them. Obviously, again, using all the resources that were available. Elections were not fair. And the Elton won very narrowly in the second round. I think the first one was 35-32. Very, 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 very close. And um, we had General Lebitz, who was independent, but obviously, you know, helped Yeltsin to drive some votes from Zuganov. And after that, I lost any interest. I thought, fine, we're done. Communism is not returning. I can just go do other things. The new chapter of my political engagement began in 1999. Putin, KGB. Look, having KGB guy as Yeltsin's successor, and the guy who said publicly, once KGB, always KGB, he just reconfirmed what we all knew. No former KGB officers. Somebody who complained about the collapse of the Soviet Union as uh, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, that was tough. So I didn't know what to do. Again, I was busy, you know, playing my chess and I had first attempt on having online business, Kasparovchess.com. But when we had these explosions, you know, the terrorist attacks, and it was too suspicious from day one. It's clearly there was a KGB hand behind it and I could smell rat. And when Putin was elected, and again, these elections were already definitely not fair, he still may be free. But unlike 1996, they definitely, you know, falsified the result of the first round. Because Putin would have won the second ballot. But by 11 o'clock, we saw 46-something percent, point something percent for Putin. And in the next few hours, he jumped to 53. Things don't work this way. So I could really see that something was going wrong. And from 2001, when they destroy the main television station, NTV, I thought, okay, I have no choice but to go back. It's a full Monty campaign. So I was still playing chess, but I already had in my mind that eventually I would have to leave chess and do something for my country. And at that point, you really devote a lot of time to trying to organize the opposition against Putin. From 2001 to 2005, it was not a professional job to me, so because I was still playing chess. I still had other things, including rebuilding my private life, because going through divorce and uh, marrying Dasha, so we married in 2005. But I was already engaged. I took part on many gatherings, so basically like testing, testing water. But in 2005, I stopped playing chess, and I decided to dive into these muddy waters of Russian politics. And I publicly stated my opposition to Putin's regime. And uh, I made many warnings. Those warnings that I'm proud of, that were not heeded, ignored, people looked at me, uh, he's radical. In 2006, the organization that I founded, United Civil Front, had a Congress, and we actually published a document saying, looking at the trends of Putin's regime, this regime would not leave power through normal democratic process. It will not be changed by the ballot. We have been labeled radical, standing on the way of evolution. Inside Russia, many liberals, many people, you know, just that had to be our, you know, ideological allies, they thought we were cursed. It's like a plague, you know, radicalism. And the fact is that I wanted to work with any political force to actually bring back free and fair elections. So that's made things even worse. And in the West, nobody wanted to hear that. I remember in 2006, Putin hosted the G8 meeting. And it was impossible to explain to Americans or Europeans that everything we said, Gary Kasparov, Boris Nemtsov, who was one of the 
earliest defectors from this systemic opposition into the radical wing. So no matter what we said, people just, you know, they look at the TV screen. They see Putin sitting with Bush, Merkel, Sarkozy, Berlusconi, and this is, of course, he's a Democrat. So how can we beat this? How can we beat this picture and the state propaganda that has been trumpeting the fact that Putin was fully recognized as a democratic leader? And now we know we wasted very precious time. We still had a chance, actually. The free world saw the threat the way we saw it back there from Russia. We probably could stop Putin from coming back after 2008. Maybe still was a chance to actually force Putin out and just, you know, give us a chance. Not that I'm a big fan of Medvedev, he was a Putin shadow, but at least, you know, just to avoid, you know, a threat. It's clear threat of the one-man dictatorship that was really looming on the horizon. It was not just, you know, the 99-2000 stories about explosions. We already had Nordost, the theater of hostages, and the gas that was used to kill so many hostages. We had Beslan, you know, the tragedy in the school that has been bombed and more than 300 people were killed, including 185 kids. We had Anna Politkovska being killed in 2006. We had many things that indicated Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned in London. By 2007, we already had enough of Putin's actions, not just his words, to recognize the danger of him staying in power. And the fact that in 2007, he did not walk away as he had to and said, ah, well, I will be a prime minister. I mean, for me, that was very clear. That, you know, Medvedev was a puppet. And the fact is that Europeans and Americans, they embraced Medvedev and they thought about Medvedev as an independent political force. It was ludicrous. So the first time that I saw you live was when I was a graduate student at Harvard University and you came to speak there to present one of your books. I think this must have been around the time that Barack Obama ran for re-election. So I'm imagining perhaps it's the fall of 2011 or sometime during 2012. And it was striking because at this point, you were in political exile from Russia. You were warning about Putin being a dictator, but also about Russia having expanded ambitions to be a spoiler on the international scene. And in the political constellation of the moment, it was actually Obama who had tried the reset with Russia it was the Democrats who were relatively more friendly to the Russian regime. And it was Mitt Romney who was taking a tougher stance. And the audience, as I recall, was reasonably hostile to you. They treated you like a sort of odd Republican hawk who's trying to sell America and some kind of confrontation with Russia. So tell us about your political exile coming to the United States and you know the difficulty you had at that time convincing many of the people who are now very critical of Russia and the Kremlin regime to listen to you about the dangers that Putin represented? You know, in my book, Winter is Coming, I talked about top American officials. All of them, with no exception, became aware about threat coming from KGB and Putin after they left the office. It's amazing. You read their memoirs. Whoever, Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Madeleine Albright, the long list. And they all knew but somehow, when they were in the office, they acted differently. And I, again, as we already discussed, I knew enough from my previous Soviet life. I knew what KGB was. I read enough books. And I saw the growing threat of Putin to the free world, not only to Russia, but to the neighboring countries and to the rest of Europe and eventually to America, because he already at the time controlled more resources than any individual in the history of human race. 
And he was not shy to use this money to bribe politicians. The fact is that he could buy former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder and many other politicians, no, not of that caliber, though, Prime Minister of Finland, former Prime Minister Lippmann. And now we have Francois Fillon, the former French Prime Minister. And again, it's a long list now of politicians who decided to sell their souls and principles, if they had any, for Putin's cash. For me, that was a clear and present danger. And when Putin attacked the Republic of Georgia, Technically, it was Medvedev in power, but I had no doubt that it just was Putin's push uh, to punish Saakashvili for his independent politics. And I pointed out at the threat to Ukraine, and many people asked me, so how did you manage to actually to figure it out? I said, it was easy. I looked at the map. It was not, you know, uh, rocket science. So just to understand that any country that tried to actually to escape from the sphere of influence of Kremlin would be subject to an attack. Thanks God that the Baltic states, they were under NATO umbrella. Though, as we know, these days, probably even NATO doesn't offer you know, full protection, but at least they have NATO status. But Ukraine, for me, was just a clear target of Putin's aggression. And also, I had no doubt that he would look for any opportunity to spread chaos around the world, because that's what he needed. By the way, as every dictator here, you can't blame him for hiding his intentions. That's exactly as Hitler did. Hitler always spoke about his intentions. And what we heard, you know, in the 30s and what we heard in the first decade of Putin's rule, oh, this is for domestic consumption. You just have to follow what Putin had been saying all uh, along. And he was telling you exactly, that's what I'm going to do. His speech in Munich in 2007 at the conference was a clear message to the world that he is going to depart from the arrangements of the post-Cold War. And he would restore Russian imperial power today, in 2021. We still have people saying, yes, maybe we should not uh, take this, you know, word of the face value. No, we must. They keep telling us. And uh, by the way, with every success, they're getting more and more arrogant they're, because they're emboldened. Dictator never asks why. It's always why not. And so far, Putin asked why not many times. And all we saw, very little action, cancel words, warnings. Every time, you know, he receives a warning, it becomes a laughing stock of Russian propaganda. So you were an early and present critic of Vladimir Putin. You ended up in the United States, you know, on foreign policy for a few years during the Obama presidency, being closer to Republicans than to Democrats, because you agreed with people who were more critical of the Putin regime. And yet you also were one of the first people to really warn about Donald Trump. And you were very clear-eyed about him. So tell us how you took some of the insights you developed in Russia, seeing the rise of Vladimir Putin, how you so quickly applied them to the candidacy of somebody like Donald Trump, and why there wasn't a temptation, for example, to say, hey, these are to some extent my political allies, these are the people who were willing to call out Putin, and you know, perhaps I shouldn't go break that political alliance, because I think so many people end up with that kind of tribal loyalty, which you've managed to eschew again and again throughout your career. Look, you know, you talked about tribal loyalty, but I'm not an American citizen. I'm not a member of Republican Party, neither Democratic Party. And it's not that I say, you say, he, she says. I'm on the record since 1991 for criticizing every American president, starting with Bush 41, for their indecisive actions against communism and KGB. So Bush 41, Bill Clinton, Bush 43, Barack Obama, it all depended on their actions. So that's while, you know, I may consider myself politically maybe slightly center-right, but I was never associated with any political group in full. So what my interest was, foreign policy. 
And again, this was based on foreign policy so that I made my judgment of the respective administration. I think Obama administration's foreign policy was a total disaster, especially the second term with John Kerry, who had probably the worst record of any Secretary of State, definitely in my memory, by giving up all the demands of Russians. And I think he's personally responsible for disaster in the Middle East and many other things that eventually convinced Putin that he could go with final blow that he wanted to deliver to destroy American democracy. I think Donald Trump's ascent and the KGB operation to actually help him to be elected, no matter what people say about Steel Dozier, I never, by the way, talked about Steel Dozier because for me, I didn't need to look at the Dozier because I saw Russian propaganda machine fully supporting Trump and using this newly built, you know, troll factories and fake news industry to help Trump to be elected. And uh, whatever the Trump relations with KGB were in the past, and I believe they were, it was clear that Putin thought that it was a time for this final blow to actually to divide America, to cause American democracy, so the friction that it couldn't heal. And Trump was an ideal agent of chaos. It's like, you know, the icebreaker, basically just, you know, destroying American political system. I don't think Putin expected Trump to win, but he thought that Trump could actually do what he's doing now to be nominated. That's why you have Putin's cronies to work with Trump at the early stage of the campaign. And losing elections narrowly to Hillary Clinton, and then, you know, challenge the elections. So I think what we're seeing now, that was a summer scenario for 2016. But surprisingly, Trump won. And again, I was very consistent. I was highly critical about his administration. And now my problem is that the new administration that had to actually cure the damage caused by Trump demonstrated its, I would say, impotence, or some say incompetence, maybe both, to deal with clear and present danger, with a threat from Putin. The summit in Geneva was a disaster beyond imagination. And of course, we don't want to waste time talking about Afghanistan. So how do you see the state of American democracy now? I'm an incorrigible optimist by nature. And I always want to look at the brighter side of the problem. I still believe American democracy is strong enough to survive this challenge, but the challenge is much tougher than I thought. In chess, you always look at trends. In any sporting event, you should look at the trends. It's not just the current result, but where things are just going to. I think the latest trends are not looking good because it's the polarization that's bothered me so much. And that's why I founded a Renewed Democracy Initiative. And I spent nearly five years working, you know, with people in the center, trying to bring people from the left and right, you know, just to work together to build a strong coalition that could resist the pressure from radicals on far left and far right. It's not yet there. And I see that both parties, they are just under tremendous pressure from different forms of radicalism. On one side, we have a cult of personality. And the latest, you know, is Wyoming Republican Party narrowly voting, you know, to, I would say, expel Liz Cheney. So, or not consider her a member of GOP. And that tells you that the criteria of being Republican now is loyal to Trump. This is the criteria. I know what it is. On the other side, you have ideological purity. It's not individual loyalty, but the loyalty to a concept, to ideology. Basically, you know, you cannot debate things because it's ABC and just, you know, that's like a new Bible. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it ideological jihad or ideological crusade. Depends what you want to cancel first. It's not about words, but it's a principle to win debate by ending debate. And uh, knowing that there are certain socially unchallengeable dogmas that you must obey. So in the morning, you look at New York Times and you're horrified. In the evening, you hear Tucker Carlson. You have a plague and cholera. 
So how are you going to deal with that? I don't know, because practically, I think the country needs a third party. Practically, country needs something in the middle because it's no longer, you know, debating, you know, small issues, you know, about just, you know, taxes higher. This is about, you know, preserving the country. This is about saving the country from craziness that is threatening from both sides. And I'm afraid that's my biggest, you know, nightmare that in 2024, we will see Donald Trump running against progressive because that's what both sides hope for. The far left and democratic party who can actually rally support at the primaries, they hope for Donald Trump to be nominated because that's their only chance. Donald Trump looks at them and says, oh, that's my chance. Because naturally, Donald Trump cannot beat a reasonable Democrat. Any moderate Democrat, even Joe Biden, was definitely you know, past his peak. So he beat Trump. Now, any reasonable Democrat, it's a middle ground Democrat, will beat Trump. Same story goes, goes out of the round. Any reasonable Republican will beat a progressive. But it seems to me that the both parties now just, you know, they cannot escape this curse of radicalism. And again, cult of personality on one side and ideological purity on the other side. One question about what you call ideological purity. I saw that in an interview a few days ago, the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei seemed to imply that what he called American political correctness and the punishment of people who fall short of it reminded him of the Cultural Revolution in China. What do you make of that kind of comparison? Do you feel that this culture of ideological purity has that kind of a fertile streak, or do you think that that is a significant overstatement? Look, it's not about words or labels. You can call it witch hunt, you can compare it to events that happened in your country, as AVVA did. At the end of the day, it's something that threatens the free flow of ideas, the freedom of speech. And uh, our recent project that was released on CNN, RDI project, Frontlines of Freedom, now on CNN, it's called Voices of Freedom, that brought together 52 dissidents from 28 countries that expressed their grave concerns about the current state of American democracy. Looking at both sides, again, looking at January 6th and the cancel culture, whatever the name you want to use for this. That's an attempt to share our firsthand experience and to warn Americans about dangers to American democracy. So I recently was part of this Intelligence Square debate platform called Cancel Culture is Toxic. And it's good that we are already debating it. And it seems to me that the defenders of cancel culture, they have two contradictory arguments to defend their position. One is the cancel culture doesn't exist. And the second one is that it's those who suffered, they deserved it. So it's difficult to bring them together, but somehow they manage. Yeah, the position often seems to be cancel culture doesn't exist and it's good that it does. More and more people recognize the dangers of agenda of the Democratic Party being hijacked by the radicals. Hopefully the latest elections in Virginia and New Jersey send a clear message that pushing this ideological narrative could be very, very costly. And uh, it seems that it's unlikely Democrats can control both House and the Senate a year from now. And unless, again, unless we see the reorganization in their ranks and files, I'm afraid that it's Donald Trump again, who is not hiding his intentions, basically, to take over. And uh, if Donald Trump is dominated and Democrats cannot have a proper candidate to stop him, then American democracy could be in grave danger. So let me ask you two very simple questions to close of our conversation, Gary. Number one, what can those of us who are very worried about the prospect of Donald Trump coming back in 2024 do to minimize the likelihood of that outcome? And second, what can the world do to stand up for liberal democracy against its enemies, domestic as well as foreign, at home as well as from the Kremlin? Speaking about Trump's chances to be reelected, it's the two stages. One is whether he will be nominated. 
And until recently, I thought it would be impossible. After the vote in Wyoming, I'm not so sure. So they are silent. They are not taking the side of Liz Cheney. That sends a very bad signal about the chances of Donald Trump not being renominated in 2024. So having the third candidate, unfortunately, is unlikely. I would love to see someone in the middle, someone strong, you know, like young Schwarzenegger, born in America, as a fantasy. I don't see anyone in the horizon right now. Again, if anything happens, let me know. I'm more than happy to assist this person in the group to launch the challenge. And the simplest one is for Democrats to get their act together, recognizing that if Donald Trump is nominated, all you need is just, you know, to have young Bill Clinton, young Jimmy Carter. The problem is, you know, looking at the current state of affairs in the Democratic Party, and this is the split between progressives and moderates, that will be a challenge. Though, again, the, the latest elections, like in New York, show that is the common sense often prevails. So if Democrats could actually make clear that no radical agenda will be part of their ticket in 2024, that might also derail Trump's chances because they're connected. The radicals need each other. I always say that the best fundraiser for AOC is Trump and the best fundraiser for Trump is AOC. So as for the global affairs, I don't know if this administration can do it, but they must go back. So we are all waiting for this global summit on democracy. But I don't know, would it be another gathering, me awards and no action? Or it will end up with some sort of, you know, structure that will bring together the, the democracies, the way that late John McCain dreamt of the leak of democracy. Can this administration pull it out? I don't know. I hope so. But it's very important for America to come back. Because there's no way that America can look inward and concentrate on domestic affairs. America must lead the world. Because if America walks away, we know what happens. So when Yankee go home, Putin, Xi Jinping, Taliban, Iranian mullahs, they all come in. And they're not just coming in for the regions that they want to control. Eventually, it hits America as well. I think now pe more people recognize it. I saw it was a great article of Anna Pilbaum, just about autocrats, why they're winning. There was a very good lead article in The Economist. So I hear the voices that confirm what I knew 15 years ago. But as we say in chess, better late than never. Eric Kasparov, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.